Hello and welcome to the Collective Wisdom Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be a wiser version of yourself. This is a podcast that helps you to tap into your own inner wisdom and find the answers within you for how to live your best life. I'm your host, Kat Preston. I'm a certified life coach and I help people to turn down the noise in their heads and tune into the wisdom in their hearts. Every week, I'll be asking my guests to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. Hey there, my wise friends, and welcome to the podcast and a very happy new year to you. I hope you're having a great start to 2022 and that your Christmas plans weren't too disrupted by the dreaded COVID. I know my friend Tina spent Christmas lunch sitting in a hazmat suit at one end of the table while the family were at the other end with all the windows open. We're kicking off this year with an amazing guest, Michael Bungay-Stenier, who is well-renowned in the coaching world, having written his brilliant book, The Coaching Habit, which really leans into how you can bring coaching into all aspects of your life, whether you're a parent or a manager or a teacher, and how it really does inspire creative thinking and self-sufficiency. I reached out to him as he's just launching his latest book, which is called How to Begin, It feels like really perfect timing as for many of us, the beginning of a new year is a time to reflect back on last year and perhaps set some goals for the year ahead. Michael's take on it is to invite you to set a goal that is at the same time thrilling, important and daunting. And his book is a practical tool that will help you to outline your goal in the first place and then really dig into why it matters, which will in turn help you to stay motivated. There's an old Buddha saying that the best time to start anything was probably 20 years ago, and the second best time is probably today. So if you have an idea for something that you want to launch or get off the ground, then this book is definitely one you should consider reading. As Michael says himself, progress equals happiness, and often we find meaning and happiness with small wins every day. That's how we make real progress. I loved his story about Bob Dylan's song, Crossing the Rubicon. And apparently now he sets his phone every day at 5.23 to play it and uses it as a prompt to write down two or three things that he's done that day to keep projects moving forward. Sometimes it can be the smallest little thing that makes the biggest difference. So this is a book that's really about figuring out what to focus on and then helping you to take those small steps to find the wins that get you across the threshold towards your goal. In preparation for the interview, I worked through the book myself, and I can honestly say it's really powerful stuff. So with that, I'll hand you over to Michael and just say how much I am so grateful to him for joining me to share his wisdom. I'm so thrilled to say that joining me today is one of my all-time heroes from the coaching world. Michael Bungay-Stanier, or simply MBS as he's more commonly known, who is on a mission to build a life well lived and help others to do the same. Michael describes himself as a gatherer of people, a teacher, a champion for making wisdom accessible, and an advocate of underrepresented voices, which is why I think he fits in so well here. He's also been a host to six different podcasts over the years, including the latest of which, which is called Two Pages, where he invites his guests to dig into the best two pages of their favorite book 
and which is now 70 episodes in and has all the elements of being a top-notch professional podcast. Famous for his colourful shirts, and I'm happy to say he's wearing one today, and his ever so slightly too tight trousers, Michael is the founder of Box of Crayons, a company that has spent the last 20 years helping people and the organisations they work for become less advice-led and more curiosity-led. And by doing so, do less good work and more awesome work. His book, The Coaching Habit, became a bestseller and has now sold close to a million copies so far. In it, he introduces the eight coaching questions that he's discovered over the years can cut to the chase and help leaders to empower those who they serve to find their own solutions, often in the space of 15 minutes. He followed this up in 2019 with the advice trap, encouraging us all to hone those all important listening skills and refrain from jumping in and killing innovation with our carefully constructed and often ego-driven advice. Taming the advice monster is the cure, but it's so much easier said than done. And he's now followed up with his latest book, How to Begin, which invites readers to set themselves a worthy goal that is thrilling, important, and daunting all at the same time. It's compelling and informative as well as being interactive. This is not just a book to read, but comes complete with exercises that if you dedicate time to them, will help you define your goal, confirm that it's a meaningful enough goal for you to pursue, and then take you through a process to ensure you are committed to it and ready to take action. I read it on a flight from Singapore and therefore had the advantage of being able to do all the exercises in one go and the insights I got as a result around what's next for me in terms of professional growth and development were so, so powerful. And its release is beautifully timed as we are all staring down the barrel of a brand new year ahead of us. But what's most brilliant about this book is the ending, which is a profoundly touching eulogy to Michael's father, Robin, who sadly died in July this year. It brings the book to a close with the most poignant reminder of what it's essentially about, how to begin doing things that matter most to you and which ultimately give more to the world and the people in it than you take from it. It finishes with a line from the poet Rilke's poem, A Man Watching. Winning does not tempt him. His growth is to be deeply defeated by even greater things, which I think we can safely say sums Michael up in a nutshell. So that's a long introduction because you have so much going on, Michael. <laughs> that is a great am, introduction. I is, am uh... <laughs> beyond thrilled to welcome you to the podcast. And firstly, I'd just like to say how sorry I was that, you know, you had to say goodbye to Robin this summer. Yeah, um, and express my condolences. But what a beautiful testament. And yeah, what a beautiful eulogy for what sounds like a great man. He was a great man. And uh, honestly, with this book, I, the fact that my dad got to read that last couple of pages that I wrote before he died oh um, with my mum. So my mum and dad and I kind of sat around and they read it together kind of means that I've already won <laughs> whatever yes. happens with this book. It, it, it was a really wonderful moment. Um, but yeah. thank you, Kat, for that introduction. It's a very thoughtful and kind introduction, so I appreciate it. Well, listen, it's a it's a way of repaying. I was first introduced to your work when I joined a team of coaches at uh, Seth Godin's uh, Kimbo. Mm -hmm. You know, it's where Bernadette Giua has her story skills workshop. That's where I work. And all the coaches were talking about MBS, and I was kind of... <laughs> 
MB who? Yeah. <laughs> and I Googled MBS and I got the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And yeah. so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the other MBS. Yeah. That can't be who they mean. And then <laughs> and then I had to sort of sidle up to one of them and they said, oh no, Michael Bangestanya, he's he's just this, you know, guru in the coaching world. <laughs> and so I just lapped up the coaching mm. habit, which has become a go-to resource. And yeah, and then the advice trap, which I think is something what you do is you you have a brilliant way of coining it you know just oh that's what it is you know you understand how people tick um so my question for you really is where does that come from that that sort Mm. of knowledge of people and what makes them tick well that's a big question um you know, my friend Shannon says I'm good at thingifying stuff to kind of give concepts, handles that people can grasp and kind of appreciate as something that's real or useful for them. So it's probably a twofold thing. The first is I'm a big reader and a lover of books and always have been. And, you know, at university, I did degrees in literature. So I, I love a good metaphor <laughs> or a good yeah. simile. And I think having um, access to, to, to thinking metaphorically uh, and the like allows me to try and find different words and different language to explain concepts. Because I do feel that part of what I'm trying to do is not invent new ideas. You know, I often say my work is old wine and new bottles. Mm. But it's like come up with a new bottle, a new way of making what is complex and sometimes hard to grasp simpler and graspable so people can kind of go oh yeah that's (laughs) oh i get that now that's Um, exactly it yeah yeah and then in terms of of how i know what makes people tick well it's a combination of a talking to people (laughs) b reading and learning about psychology and human dynamics and some of the the understood ways of people showing up in the world and then just trying to watch my own self and my own process and go that's true for me it's probably true for other people as well um you know i remember just doing a a, a stand-up comedy uh course and just going uh, you know part of what comedy does and the the secret of good comedy is they just name what all of us know to be true, we just hadn't kind of realized it. So in some ways, what I'm doing is the same discipline of stand-up comedy. I'm not nearly as funny as stand-up comedians, but I try to be. Yeah, you <laughs> I get close. In a you do get two. close. I mean, I think yeah. what's what's great, what's so compelling about, so, certainly when you go into teacher mode, you know, I've been mm. to some of your workshops because you always, you always give so much value around your books. You always do a preamble and you know come to this workshop and see what the contents where it's come from yeah. and it's always delivered in this slightly self-deprecating always amusing full <laughs> of metaphors um i mean this right. book is also littered with i i even love the way you describe i collect me- metaphors like a squirrel collecting nuts so there's this sort of <laughs> image of michael sort of yeah, bumbling around and, and collecting them all but you know is it a process that that self-awareness that you were talking about? Mm. Is that because you have just had the benefit of a lot of coaching over the years yourself? Um, it's hard to say. Um, it might 
be some somewhere part of it is inherent. You know, I, I remember doing my first kind of self-helpy thing when I was probably 18, right after high school. I took my first class. It was a class on how to be more spontaneous, which meant that I spent the next year having the Mickey taken out of me for going to a class and how to be more spontaneous. But I'd always just, I was just kind of interested in who am I and what's the best version of myself, even when I was in high school doing, you know, A-level equivalents or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was, and I was watching myself doing the work and figuring out how do I, how do I hack the system or how do I understand the system and how do I get the best of myself so that I'm best able to deliver the, the kind of top of my potential? So I suspect it's just been something I've been curious about for quite a long time. And the more you do it, the more you do it. And the more yeah. you do it, the better you yeah. get at it. Um, so, you know, now that I'm in my, somebody called it my early mid fifties the other day. So I'm in my early <laughs> mid fifties. Same. <laughs> yeah. I, it's like, okay. So it means that I've now been thinking about who I am and what I'm good at and what I'm not good at and how I work and interact with people for 35 years. Yeah. If I wasn't somewhat good at it, <laughs> I'd have had a, it would have been a pretty a fruitless 35 years. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's what you do is you don't just take those insights and apply them to yourself. You do then turn it into work that right. all of your books do this to help other people do it for themselves and right. to help the people who are in leadership positions, whether you're a parent or, you know, running an organization that, I mean, especially those coaching questions are so insightful because they do help you like you apply it and you go oh my god my whole interaction with my teenager has just changed because <laughs> i love that i'm doing yeah. things differently yeah that's great i, I honestly it's, it's I, I don't have kids i'm happily child free but i do get pretty regular notes and stuff from parents going you know i did this with my kid and it's actually worked really well it's the best yeah. conversation i've had with them for years and i'm like that's pretty cool and, but then they get they get wise to it and they go Oh no, you're coaching me now, mom. I don't want to be coached. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you go, you're right. I was coaching you and I, and I don't want to coach you. Yeah. But you know, yeah. what, what is the challenge here for you? <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah, okay. And then they'll talk about it. So um, yeah, it still yeah. works. It's hard to resist a good question. Absolutely. And then and then that sort of that that the one that I have taken and just use all the time is your second question, which is what you call the or question but it is basically just whatever you're asking how do you feel or what's on your mind and you get people to to answer and then you say and what else right and then they and then all you have to do is leave silence <laughs> enough space well what, what's wonderful about that question is mostly people don't really hear it what they hear is you not rushing in to fill the space and inviting the the answer to continue yeah. so it's just like the the gentlest push at the small of their back to nudge them forward to kind of say this there's there's more there's more here right yeah. um and you know when i'm teaching i'll sometimes stop you know an hour into the workshop and i go all right best question in the world it's a question i've asked more than 30 times in this workshop what's the question and everyone's like no idea you haven't asked a single question 30 times. I'm like, I really, I have. And it's always, and what else? Because people yeah. just don't hear it. What they hear is you 
holding the space for them. And that's part of the power of being more coach-like. Yeah. And I think what else, what they also don't hear is the silence, the the space, as you say, right. to, to fill it with, oh, I do have the answer inside, <laughs> you know, especially when you get to the, I don't know, which is always, but you do know. And, and it, it allows well, that. Sometimes they don't know, but, but it's worth at least shining the torch into the corners and poking yeah. around a bit to see, yeah. well, what do you know? Because there's often more to be found out, but let's at least figure out what's known before we try and figure out what's not known. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, this, this, I mean, you've applied this to the process of how to begin mm-hmm. um, by taking something, a seed of an idea, and it really is instructional on helping people get to the bottom of why it's important to them. And is this a process that you have sort of, applied i mean i i imagine it's something you built as a workshop first of all and then it's a kind of chicken and egg question how did it come about you know with with the coaching habit one of the reasons it is so tight as a book is that i i've been teaching variations on this for at least five years probably longer and it meant that i had a bunch of stuff that was like like stones polished by a river. It, they were pretty smooth. They were pretty mm. tested. They, I knew what the weight was. I knew what the right language was. And I knew what I could not include. And when I started writing this, some of the stuff that I was talking about, I had tested a bit, but some of it was new. And in writing it, I was like, you know what? This sounds good to me, but I don't know if it's really good. So what I did is I spent um, six months running um, free workshops for the people who are part of my community. I just said, look, come along. It's, it's an hour. There'll be 10 people in the class, no more than 10 people in the class. And I just took people through the process, particularly the, um, you know, there are three sections and and each section has three steps in it. Basically, I took people through the first six steps of the process over a a pretty fast moving hour. And it meant that, um, you know, I'd I'd run the session over a hundred times for over a thousand people. And it was of service to them, but mostly it was me saying stuff out loud going, is that the best way I can say it? Did that land? Mm-hmm. Did that mm-hmm. joke land or did it not land? You know, so it was a way of me kind of just testing and polishing and just fitting the pieces together. So the process felt like it was robust and I knew that it, it had resonated with people. And that is kind of, that's so fascinating to me because that is, it's very meta. It, that is the process. You're asking people to take that goal and almost test it before you get too wedded to it, to the too locked into right. it. Before I codify it, let yeah. me actually have it engage with reality. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Because I do feel like a bunch of books that I've read in my past, I'm like, that sounds good in reality and, and on page ish, but I wonder how that actually bumps up against the, the what the messiness of real people are like. And Absolutely. often it feels like this is being concocted in a lab without ever being kind of walking the streets and getting its feet dirty. Yeah, and I think one of the most insightful exercises for me was the um, the sticking with the status quo. So you're you're mm. you're constantly asking your future self, if you like, if you do pursue this, 
what you know what are going to be the sticking points get real about those now get honest about them but the one that really stuck and resonated was what is the what's the benefit of not doing it what's the benefit of the status quo and that i i realized why i hadn't moved forward with my goal yeah it was because there were so many things that were to my advantage (laughs) (laughs) you know you know i might just to give my kind of intellectual tip of the cap to where that comes from you know it's ron heifetz talking about technical change and adaptive change and then Heifetz's work being picked up by Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy and immunity to change. And this is my version of some of the stuff that they're talking about, yeah. which is, you know, we, we are just far more committed to the status quo than we realize. And even though we, we might be fueled with the fire of, you know, I want to do this next big thing and I want things to be different and I want them to change, you know, uh, Keegan and Leahy use a metaphor and immunity to change, which is sometimes it feels like you've got your foot on the accelerator and you've also got your foot on the brake at the same time. So you don't realize you got your foot on the brake and yeah. what that part of the commit process, which is the deepest part of the work, I think is about understanding how your foot is on the brake and what is required for you to lift your foot off the brake and put it more firmly onto the accelerator. Yeah. This idea of, committing and i read i read recently that deciding even comes from well it came from the you know the book 4000 hours uh, mm-hmm. 4000 weeks that, yeah. that you only have 4000 weeks on this planet yeah and he said that the verb to decide actually comes from its latin roots of homicide and suicide it's to cut off That's other right. options so it's yeah. what is it you are when you're going to commit what is it you're saying no to? Not the things that you don't actually want to do anyway, but the things right. that actually you really do want to do. Right. Because every decision you make is there's an opportunity cost. <laughs> you're yeah. ruling stuff out. Yeah. And one of the delighting things of not committing to anything is you haven't ruled out any possibilities yet. The problem is you also haven't committed to any possibilities as well. So you kind of stay mired in the soup of the status quo rather than going this is the path I'm following. It means I'm not following those other paths. Yeah. And I think that was, it was that moment of awareness. And then, and then what you do so successfully with this book is take it one step further than I think a lot of goal setting, you know, when you set smart goals, for example, Mm -hmm. is to actually say, right, now we've committed, we've decided this is the goal. We're going to, we've, we've framed it. We know exactly why we're doing it. We've got the motivation what is it going to take to cross the threshold, which is the right. last part of the book, which. Yeah. Because I've just, I mean, maybe you too, um, Kate, but I've just tens, if not hundreds of times come up with exciting goals and then fail to act on them in any way, shape or form. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what, what's that about? What's wrong with me? Why wouldn't I be get going on this? And sometimes it's because the goal isn't quite right. And sometimes it's because the goal is right. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's daunting. That's part of the mix, thrilling, important, and daunting. Yeah. You know what? It's it's safer to stay at home. Yeah. And, you know, in the hero's journey, the hero always hears the call to adventure and resists the call to adventure. So this is a very human, natural part of it. Like, oh, you know, the resistance you feel, that tells you that you're onto something interesting. Yeah, it's where but don't, but don't, yeah. But don't fall for it. You still need to get across the threshold. You still need to start taking small steps towards whatever that goal might be. Yeah. And I think it's that that's the key. It was the small steps 
you know, what is the smallest viable thing you can do, but mm. do it every single day if you're committed right. to this goal. And then the thing around who you're going to take with you, because I think doing right. it alone is where I come a cropper. It's like, I'm trying to do all of this and it becomes overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exhausting. And I have, I'm wired for that as well. I'm a bit of a kind of, you know, even though I know better, there's some part of me is like, like deceiving myself of this, you know, lone hero striding through the wilderness, you know, conquering worlds by myself. And I'm like, ah, who am I kidding? Yeah. And this idea of kind of more deliberately building the support around you that you need, it's, you know, it's an act in some ways of giving up some of the control, but it's also an act of expanding what's possible by doing that. It just opens up. Yeah, it, it really takes it. I guess it's about trust as well you know there's an element of trust but mm -hmm. also i don't know that i trust myself to even be the the, the best person to delegate so that that right. came up for me in in some of those exercises even it was it was really getting down to the minutiae of who why are you choosing this person and who you you know right. you, you break it down into those archetypes of who you're going to need along to support mm -hmm. you really really powerful stuff Great. And I think the other thing I loved about it was you used two very concrete examples of your own. Mm -hmm. And one of them for me was just a gift because my goals are all around this podcast and growing it. And, right. you know, believe me, a year ago, this was just about getting this thing started. There was no yeah. lofty where it's going to go and how big it's going to get. It was just literally, could you just get on with not talking about it? <laughs> right. That's hard enough, it. which is yeah. like getting a microphone and exactly. how to plug it into your computer and getting a first guest who's willing to talk to you and then learning oh, how to ask a decent question. All of that stuff is the foundational. But you were taking this, your goal, which was this latest podcast of yours through the paces of, yeah, now I'm going to really put myself on the hook and not just say, I'm going to make a podcast, right. but I'm going to make a truly great podcast. Yeah. So I was interested in how that's been going. Uh, so it's, it's been helpful to hold it as a standard. So as you said in the introduction, I've done five or six podcasts already in my, in my past. So, um, you know, and before you hit record, we were like, I like your microphone. Well, I like your microphone sort of thing. <laughs> so like I've got a set up. So um, there, there's a bunch of stuff around running a podcast that is not daunting for me. It's not daunting for me to reach out to people and invite them on. It's mm -hmm. not, that daunting for me to be an interviewer. Um, I have discovered in this, this new podcast that I'm really trying to up my game around what it means to be a great interviewer. So it's, it's learning for me daunting, but there's lots of things which aren't daunting for me around setting a podcast. So I was like, okay, if this feels like a worthy goal, what needs to be true for this to be thrilling and important and daunting. Mm. So the meta learning here is, it's worth really interrogating the goal you set yourself and, and refining it and tweaking it and amplifying it and strengthening it and editing it. So it becomes something that has real resonance for you. Starting a podcast, not that resonant for me, although something that sounds like I should do. So I could get seduced into claiming that as a goal, but creating a, a podcast that's in the top 3% of podcasts and more specifically, that is getting 10,000 downloads per episode. That's daunting because I don't know how to do that. Yeah. And I still don't know how to do that. Now, I'm at, as you said, 70 or thereabouts episodes on this new podcast. And I think I found my groove in terms of its hook and me as an interviewer and the type of people I want to invite. So the product itself 
feels like it's it's pretty solid now. Mm. I think I'm up to on my good days about a thousand downloads per episode, which is you know better than some. Yeah, but but still quite a way away from my ten thousand target. So one of the things that will happen once this new book is out into the world and I have a bit more space to think about things other than just endlessly gnawing the bone of book launch obsession is to go, all right, what needs to be true for this to go from a thousand to 10,000 downloads? So now I've got to think about marketing and I've got to think about investing in sponsorship and maybe advertising and the like. So there's, there's quite a, there's quite a lot of gap to, to make up, but I still feel like I'm on the right path. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's a compelling hook. You know, everybody goes to that moment of, oh, yeah, what would be my <laughs> two pages and my favorite well, I think book? I think it's compelling, but I haven't been able to make as many people listen to it as fast as I thought, which is you know always true. It always happens slower than you think. Oh, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And so, there must be a tipping point. I think there's a tipping point when enough people have heard of it. And then, and then there is that moment where you manage yeah. to get Barack Obama to come and tell you about his two favorite <laughs> pages. <laughs> exactly. And then um, go, oh. that, that would be cool as well. I have to put in a call to him. Um, <laughs> he's on my speed dial. So I just, I don't know why I didn't think of that before. Yeah, I can't believe um, you haven't got him already, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's so, that. Yeah, it's a learning place for me, for sure. I think that is the, you know, the, the, the kind of the essence of the book is unlock your own greatness by doing the hard stuff, the really right. challenging stuff. And that's right. why this podcast is so on brand for you to be here is because you're you're always talking about challenges and before we get into your stories about challenges I I was really intrigued you know you said growing up you had a you were born with a hair lip and a cleft palate Mm -hmm. and how much of a challenge was that to you as a child well, I don't think it was that much of a challenge. So for people who don't know what a cleft lip and palate is, it's when you're born, it's a genetic thing, and you're born with the top of your mouth open. So most people, if you run your tongue over the top of your mouth, you feel like kind of a smooth, like a cave top. Um, whereas when I was born, there was, it was an open cleft, and you could kind of went through to my nose. And equally, my top lip wasn't joined up. So the reasons it's sometimes called a hair lip, um, H-A-R-E, is because you kind of look like a rabbit, you know, because rabbits have oh, that kind of funny lip thing and you can see their teeth. So that's why right. it's called a hair lip. Now, my dad has a cleft lip and palate. And so I, I grew up with it being kind of normalized around, look, my dad has a cleft lip and palate. And then my first brother, Nigel, I'm the oldest, my next brother born, he has a cleft lip and palate as well. Wow. So actually when my youngest brother was born, Gus, who was born without a cleft lip and palate, there was one moment where he actually burst into tears because he was feeling left out of the gang oh for not having goodness. that. Oh, my goodness. Now, with a cleft lip and palate, you've got a few th- it requires um, surgery when you're young, and it creates a little bit of a speech impediment, so you can probably hear that in my voice. It's a bit leaky around things. And certainly I was self-conscious about that when I was a teenager in particular, but, you know, Show me one teenager who's not self-conscious yeah. about something. You know, oh, like yeah. I was just, it's just that, that was my thing to be self-conscious about. Um, and if it wasn't that, it was my big ears. And if it wasn't my big ears, it was my skinny chest. And if it wasn't my skinny legs, it was my pretzel legs. I mean, there's a thousand things I was, you know, I could be self-conscious about. But, you know, I have, 
and have always had a pretty strong sense of self and of my own worth. So I didn't have a lot of anxiety around that. You know, it wasn't perfect, but it was, I'm, I'm, I've always had a pretty robust wiring around, look, I just think I'm, you know, the sign off in my emails is you're awesome and you're doing great. Yeah. And um, it's, it's what I think is true about me. I'm awesome and I'm doing great. Even when I'm not, even when I'm struggling and I'm feeling bad about myself, I'm still fundamentally believe that I'm awesome and I'm doing great. And in fact, you know, now in some ways, I think my cleft and palate is part of the mix of me that makes me interesting and different. And in, in, in an odd way, a little more approachable. Mm, there's that vulnerability piece yeah yeah so true like i'm not this kind of weird perfect polished thing it's yeah. like I'm, I'm this instead so um you know it's it's ebbed and flowed a little bit but for the most part i would say it hasn't strongly af- affected my sense of self and, f- and now it actually enhances that and i think it's just helping that's the other thing that you're helping people do i mean the metaphor you use in the book is is the Japanese ceramics where they actually fix ceramics with gold. So you, you right. enhance the floor, you, you actually acknowledge it, you, exactly. you, you bring it into the piece and you make it, you know, more, more attractive, more valuable than something that's flawless, if you like. Yeah. But it, I just wondered, because I, I do think that, especially when you have something in childhood that you have to overcome as a challenge, you build a resilience that stays with you. Um, and I think that's often the key to, to people who really do realize their full potential early on is because they've had to rebound from something that was really quite difficult yeah. early in life. Yeah. You know, I, that, that might be true. I, I'm not sure about it, how it is for me, because mm. the way I now tell my story is actually, I never had that. <laughs> I never had a, a feeling that this is something to overcome. Um, it was just something that was normalized for me from a, an early age. Now, it'd be interesting to go and talk to my mom and go, is that true? Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. is he, or is he now reinventing his history? Because, you know, my memory is bad at the best of times. And, you know, as I create the myth of Michael Bungay Stanya, who knows what I'm making up and what's true and what's not true. But I um, think that is also a key to, you know, how how in terms of self-improvement or betterment or is it it is how we internalize that story how we tell that story is yeah. so important so that's yeah. you know maybe you don't want to talk to your mom actually because <laughs> you'd blow that myth and then yeah, yeah have a crisis right, I talk her out of it all right that's your <laughs> that's how you remember reality but let me tell you how i fantasized it and that's the one i'm going with yeah and and i think it's that capacity therefore and, and maybe, maybe this is what helped you find that capacity to you know choose how you're going to tell your story is is but what came up for you then as a challenge? You know, when I when I wrote to you and said, well, I, I love talking about challenges. The reason I like talking about challenges is because I learned that in, you know, the kanji that for Japanese and Chinese uh, culture, mm-hmm. you have the little kanji characters and kanji, the same kanji is used for challenge and opportunity. Right. So right. I, I think just even flipping that coin over can help people. Yeah see something as when you're in that oh my god it's terrible and i can't there's nothing i can do about this yeah like what is the opportunity here yeah and i think that's that's actually the uh, um a way and again it's hard to say exactly where this comes from it it's 
in some ways, um, just hardwired. Mm. You know, my mum tells a story, you know, of watching me growing up and going, you know, her and my dad were like, we keep waiting for him to finally land in a pile of shit. So he finally realizes he's deluded and he would always somehow end up on his feet. (laughs) And so it's a, it's a very powerful framing on the world to have, which is I, most of the time I'm pretty forward oriented. So if it's, if, you know, if stuff's hitting the fan and it's hard and it's messy, I'm most of the time, well, often enough anyway, kind of going, well, okay, so how do we progress from here and where's the opportunity from here and what are the, what can we build on from here? Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm always wary when I say this because it sounds like I'm some sort of like <laughs> deluded narcissist which is not untrue. I, I, that is probably actually an accurate, the most accurate description you'll hear of me on this podcast. But, um, and I, you know, but I'm not always feeling happy and upbeat and the like. There are times where I'm stressed and, and struggle a little bit. But I keep trying to come back to it going, you know, it's, 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 this is, a, this is the situation right now. So what, what's true about this situation? And what do I do with that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what came up for you as, as when I say, you know, tell me a story about a challenge. Yeah. You know, you know, a story from my past anyway, which is like, so one of the things that is on my resume is that I'm a Rhodes Scholar. So Mm. um, most people won't know what that is, but it's basically, it's a fancy scholarship well-known in some parts of the world. It's a kind of blessing of leadership and future potential. And, you know, I sorted famous people were Rhodes Scholars like Bill Clinton and Bob Hawke, an Australian prime minister, and Benazir Bhutto, a Pakistani prime minister. You know, it's kind of a thing that often leads into a position of power and influence and leadership and status. Um, so I'm a Rhodes Scholar. So that, that you know, woohoo for that. What most people don't know is that two years before I won the Rhodes Scholarship, I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship. And, and <laughs> I really remember this because I was like, I went in and saw the, the woman, the administrator. I'm like, how does this process work? And she's like, well, you apply. And then everybody gets a first round interview. And then we narrow it down to a second round interview. And then, um, and then we pick the, the, the winners from that. I'm like, okay, great. So I applied. And then I got a letter back saying, we're not even doing a first round interview with you. Oh, wow. I was like, wow. Huh. <laughs> it, was a, it was a definite wind out of the sails moment because I'd been, I was pretty sure I'd been reassured by the woman that everybody got a first round interview, but apparently everybody but me got a first round interview. So it was one of those crossroad moments. Where I was like, what do I do with this? Do I, do I go and sulk? or just abandon it and go away and find another goal, which honestly was, is a very legitimate response, which is like, okay, this isn't the goal for me. Or do you want to have another crack at it? So I took, it took me two years to try and go, right, here's how I reorient. Here's how I do a better job. Here's how I be a bit more thoughtful about how I apply. Um, And that got me my first interview, which got me the second interview, which somehow got me selected so it is about resilience and just yeah um and do you do you remember if there was a moment where 
as you say, at that crossroads where it kind of, you you just thought, no, I, no, I'm not going to be beaten by this or a slow, you know, was that somebody else's influence or where yeah, did that come from? I, I, I not, I'm, I don't really remember. So mm-hmm. I, I'd be kind of just making something up to talk about it. But um, I think it was mostly just me in my head going, look, I can, I can do a better job at this. And, you know, you've laid down the gauntlet now. So yeah. screw yeah. that. I'm going to come back and give it another, another shot. And to get up again, which is, is, I think, one of the greatest things to be able to do in life is to mm-hmm. take some of those kind of knocks and, and yeah, stand up again. And part of, the, part of what I also think about when I think you know, when I'm confronting a, an opportunity or a challenge is asking myself, what's really at risk here? You know, what, what might I lose? Mm. Should I pursue this potential opportunity to win? And you know, when I, when I published my very first book 14 years ago and I self-published it and it was a complicated book. It was, it kind of had flip sections in it and, and, because I was self-publishing, it was kind of before the self-publishing boom. And I was like, this is, and it's going to cost me $30,000 to self-publish 5,000 copies of this book. Terrible economics. But I'd been, my grandfather had died recently and he'd left me a, a little under $30,000. And my wife basically went, look, it's okay if you just want to burn this money on this project. Wow. So... I knew that with this book, what was at risk was the amount of time that it was going to take me to do this and potentially $30,000 and potentially having 5,000 books that will be with me for the rest of my life <laughs> because I can't sell them to anybody and I can only <laughs> give them to my, my brothers so many times for Christmas presents. So and I was like, you know what? I'll take those odds. I'll, I'll play that game because yeah, if the yeah. worst that happens is I lose this, this gift money, that's okay. Yeah. And then you can start to sort of then reflect on once that's comfortable and what's the best thing that can happen mm-hmm. if this goes well. And I think, you know, I know that part of your story is having got that Rhodes Scholarship, you go to Oxford and that's where you met Marcella, your wife. So that's right. Yeah. it feels like a real sliding doors moment, you know, when oh, you start it's, that. It's, yeah, it changed everything because yeah. I, I met Marcella, which is like the number one good thing that came from that. Um, and, you know, we're just, um, We've just celebrated our 29th anniversary from our first date um, back at Oxford. Yeah, yeah, so we've been we've been friends for a long time. The other thing was it stopped me being a lawyer because I'd done a law degree in Australia, and the natural flow of things would you you'd you'd get certified as a lawyer and and then become a lawyer and then become an unhappy lawyer, and that's yeah. what would have happened to me. Um, so it kind of plucked me off that career path as well, which was a very good thing, not just for me, but for the whole legal profession, because I would have sucked <laughs> as a lawyer. You know, we, everybody would have been disappointed. We have that in common too. I have a law degree and uh, what knocked me off it was, you know, I came out of my law degree knowing nothing but that I didn't want to be a lawyer because making decisions about other people's future and making judgments yeah. just did not feel comfortable and yeah. Uh, and then, and then the other side of it to go into corporate law, the minutiae and the detail. You know, I, yeah, I, I still now can't read a contract, and, oh. and actually, even if it matters, I, I, know, <laughs> I find no, it hard too. to I'm kind like, of read the small print. 
So the idea that I that was going to be my job was to read that nobody told me that when I signed up for a law degree. You and I I are similar like that. I hear you on um, sometimes the knowing what it's it's not this but i i don't know what it is but it's just not this can be mm-hmm. a great propelling um yeah. point you know to take you you don't always get as lucky as i did which is actually having somebody deciding for you i'm like oh it's great yeah i and I, god I, reached in and plucked me off that path Thank i had the that. same we went to uh, my husband got a six-month secondment to malaysia so i right. just delayed my law school you know where I was actually going to go and train not just from the degree but mm-hmm. to be a lawyer and yeah. six months turned into four years and at the time I thought that was you know might be bad news but it felt the, the more we I got further <laughs> away from it right. the, the better it felt so for sure yeah no and I know um you know the other thing that I ask for a story about is an act of kindness and for mm. me the biggest act of kindness you know that I've encountered this week was you responding to me on Tuesday and signing up for your interview on Thursday that was like oh my god you know this is just amazing this is just incredible but but what's what's an act of kindness that's impacted you you know it's a good question I've been sitting with it thinking about it I what I would name is um being in high school um probably 14 years old and just having one of my teachers, a guy called Tim Norfolk, um, an English teacher, really recognize me for who I was at that stage. Um, yeah. It was so, is an act of kindness? Well, if you make the connection that kindness comes from the Latin root around kin, meaning family. Um, it was like a, a sense of being recognized and seen and kind of encouraged to be myself or kind of kind of fully commit to, you know, loving literature and writing in a certain way. So it was an it was an act of being seen that was really powerful and important to me. And, you know, um I'm, what's nice is I'm still in touch with him. He's now mm. a psych psychiatrist for the nhs and lives up in yorkshire so he's a long way from canberra in australia but you know uh two or three years ago he and i had dinner together in london and um it's nice to have him as a a kind of friend i guess but that act was a really powerful one for me well you know i think it's it is absolutely the ultimate act of kindness to see someone especially in their teens when that's not necessarily fully formed and Mm. and that essence of who they are. But essentially that's what you've then gone on to do for so many people yourself. Thanks. You know, Um, I think as a coach, you are constantly reflecting on, you know, holding that mirror up and saying, well, what I see is huge, huge amounts of potential, you know? Um, So perhaps that was the, the sort of moment of, that's what I want to do. The catalyst, yeah. Yeah, essentially. And I think what's lovely about it is you can then, yeah, send this podcast to, to him and say, <laughs> by the way, just by the way, so you, you know. You get a yeah. shout out. Yeah. yeah he'll probably it's, hate it's, that. He's pretty private now. He's like, <laughs> well, we won't. We, Stop yeah, we dragging won't. me into this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did nothing of the sort. I was just doing yeah. my job. <laughs> Brilliant. No, and then, you know, the thing that I collect, um, I know you're a collector of metaphors and I have a collection of songs basically because mm-hmm. they help me 
relate to moments in time and now this collection that goes alongside the podcast helps me relate to the people who have been sharing their wisdom now the only thing I know about you musically is that you play the ukulele pretty badly (laughs) yes all (laughs) true as you say but you know what what um what does music what part does music play in your life Uh, it plays a pretty big part of my life like I listen to um a lot of music and I particularly love people who are wordsmiths so mm-hmm. you know if my if I had a sing, if I had to kind of name a single record from my desert island disc or a single artist it would be Bob Dylan because his capacity to craft a song is just amazing and uh there's an Australian writer who sometimes gets called the Bob Dylan of Australia a guy called Paul Kelly and their ability to kind of tell a create an insight or tell a story or find an emotional heart of something yeah. just is amazing to me, you know? So uh, as well as the, the thing that music does, which is somehow connect to something primitive in you, um, their ability to write little worlds in their stories, I think are fantastic. Yeah, there's so almost like bringing those metaphors into the song. Yeah. So part of it so, comes back to the the whole metaphor thing for sure. So is there one Paul Kelly song that that's a favorite? Um, there is. It is. Well, I was going to tell you my my current Bob Dylan favorite song first. Okay, of all. no, no, we can, um, like, we don't have any Bob Dylan on in the collection, so I that would be believe amazing. That. Um, yeah. So from his latest album, which is called Rough and Rowdy. There's a song called um, Rubicon. And so, you know, crossing the Rubicon is a metaphor or simile for committing. And it, it, it comes from Roman times. Um, and I think Caesar coming back to, to Rome and uh, bringing his army. And the Rubicon was the boundary between being in Rome and being outside Rome and crossing the Rubicon was him bringing his army back into Rome and causing some civil war. So this idea of crossing the Rubicon means to, to commit when there's no going back, it's like burning your bridges. And uh, Dylan has a a wonderful, a wonderful song around that. Um, For Paul Kelly, he has this, it's a, I think it's a basically a perfect song called deeper water. And it tells the, life cycle of a family a a boy becomes a teen becomes a man gets married has a child and has some tragedy as part of that and uh this whole idea of deeper water and being beyond the waves and in deeper water and how that's both more dangerous and in some ways safer Mm. as well Mm. um you know in some ways it reminds me of a, a a poem from my one of my favorite poets and another Australian called David Malouf, which also talks about the the the, the depth as you drop off the coastal shelf and things get dark and mysterious. Mm. But yeah, Paul Kelly, Deeper Water would be the the second. And water song. is just you know for me it's one of those ultimate metaphors. It, mm-hmm. There's just so many different ways of exploring it and the states oh. of water and yeah, it's just. And I guess, I guess, especially being in Australia and how the coastline plays such an important part yep. of, you know, it's, it's the same here in the UK. I think there's something about being, being on an island that, that makes you very so. aware of the power of, of, of water. Now, those yep. are beautiful stories. I knew you'd have some good, um, good <laughs> insights to add there. So 
Fantastic. We, I'll, I'll actually add both of them to the playlist because it's oh, great. Becoming, Thank you. Oh, it's becoming such a valuable collection for me. And, you know, certainly um, Dylan, I know, but I don't know that song and mm-hmm. I didn't know that story. And, and it, it strikes me that that is actually a wonderful accompaniment to how to begin you know that whole totally because, because it's like of the crossing whole the threshold of, yeah no, it's like it's absolutely crossing get the it threshold. going and yeah. um so yeah that brings it full circle so i mean you you share wisdom all the time you 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 are a gatherer of people as well and you you constantly um it, it is that notion of making wisdom accessible which i just love that phrase it really jumped out for me I'm going to ask you to sort of say, what's the one piece of wisdom that you would share? Um, and what, what came to mind for you? Mm. You know, I, I think it's probably some sort of meta comment, which is there is probably a piece of wisdom that's really helpful for you, you being whoever's listening right now, So go find that piece of wisdom because, you know, there's no, there's no universal truth. There's no universal wisdom. There's no universal answer. Um, But, you know, I, I feel like I try and collect insights or collect wisdom or collect stories. And, you know, sometimes what I need to hear is it's time to cross the Rubicon. (laughs) Um, And sometimes what I need to hear is it's time to go out into deeper water. Um, And and other times those aren't the right things for me to, to, to know or to hear. So I guess the, the, the meta comment here is like, have the, have the curiosity and the courage to go find the teacher, find the wisdom, find the insight that that will provide some sort of answer to the question that you're holding yeah that's beautiful it reminds me um so much of there's a book called if i could tell you one thing i can't remember the author but he collected wisdom from some very famous you know bill clinton's in there and but the one that stood out was margaret atwood who said i can't I can't really put this down to one thing because it would depend who I was talking to. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's, it's kind of, that, that, that was the flaw in my plan when I was writing out. This <laughs> sort of, okay. So I'm going to get collective wisdom and it's like, I'm going to ask you to share one piece of wisdom, but it's really, it's really about the piece of wisdom that's helped you most. And I guess yeah. what you're saying is I've, I've been able to find the right teacher or mentor at the right time. Yeah. To, yeah, I, to well, if you're asking that slightly different question, uh, one piece of wisdom that's been very influential in just helping build a great life is um, uh, it's it's the it's the best way to teach it is through Jim Collins' metaphor, which is um, fire bullets and then fire cannonballs. You know, which is like when you're pursuing something know that your first idea won't be the real thing or the best thing. Yeah. And it's a good idea to fire bullets to figure out what the real target is because bullets are like low risk, minimum commitment experiments. But once you figure out what the thing is, it's really worth committing. It's really worth going for it. And Jim Collins would say that most people either don't fire enough bullets or they never pluck up the courage to fire the cannonball. And I'd say that, you know, in, in retrospect, I can kind of look at stuff that I've done and gone, I, I've done an okay job at 
firing bullets and firing cannonballs at the appropriate time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's how you've ended up with this sort of level of success and and a body of work that really sums you up and actually is is so valuable to the people who who follow you. You know, it's thank uh, you. It's incredibly powerful. So yeah, that brings us to a close. And I'd just like to say, as a gift, you know, it really is for my audience. This episode is going to be released just before Christmas. And then I intend to just revisit it and and add it as a bonus mid-January because I think the book itself is such a powerful way to if you've got that dream inside you to help you bring it into a a kind of game plan if you like um, a manifesto something to to help you get it from inside your head to going forward and yeah, this is we're all setting intentions and resolutions for the new year is just a, a beautiful thing. So thank you so much for joining me, Michael. My pleasure, Kat. Yeah, it's been a joy to 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 meet you in well, even if it's not in real life, this is as close <laughs> as we get to in it's, real it's, life. It's, real, it's pretty close to real life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I really well, thanks for having you. me. I appreciate it, Kat. No, very much. Thanks a lot. What a conversation, what a privilege it was to be able to spend some time with someone who really does put so much passion into not only what he produces and the great content, but also to give the gift of his presence. It really was such an enjoyable conversation. I have been doing this podcast for just over a year now. And as a goal last year, it was certainly daunting. It felt really important to talk about stuff that matters with people who care. But what I don't think I could have anticipated is just how thrilling it would turn out to be. It's given me so much joy over the last year. And as with all things that are perhaps a bit more challenging to get off the ground, the rewards when you stick it out are so well worth it. I have truly loved sharing the space with each of my remarkable guests and connecting with you as a listener. So as ever, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to another year of deeper wisdom and digging into conversations with people who care about stuff that really matters. Thanks again to Michael for being such a superstar and for honouring me with his presence on my little baby podcast. I'll always be grateful to you. Thank you so much for listening. There are almost a million podcasts out there to choose from, so I really appreciate you for choosing this one and spending your valuable time with me today. If you found it helpful, I would be truly grateful if you would rate and review it as it helps others to find us. And if you haven't already, you can hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to be sure of getting every episode sent to you. You can find all the resources we talk about and more about my guests in the show notes over at collectivewisdom.podbean.com or you can find me on Instagram at collectivewisdompod where I'd love to hear any feedback, suggestions for new guests or comments that you have. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're interested to know more about how my coaching can help you, you can find more about that on my website at catpreston.com. Thank you so much for joining me.